The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Being here, it is my pleasure and my privilege to be with you and Along with what Sam has just prayed, I pray that this will be to our profit and to the glory of God as we look at the development of witness and theological ideas, ministry uh, that uh, came within the context of Baptist history. I look upon Baptist history as one aspect of divine providence and a promise that he has given in Scripture not to uh, forsake uh, the deposit that he has given. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And these words of Paul to Timothy constitute what I think is a good philosophy of history, and particularly, of course, Christian history. Beginning with verse 8 of 2 Timothy 1, we read, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering by the gospel, by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, I know we probably all have sung the hymn, I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And that certainly is a truth that we have set forth in Scripture. He who began the good work in us will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But that's not what this particular text is saying. If we see what the language actually says and then interpret the the grammar in light of the context. I think that the ESV has actually translated this correctly when it says, uh, 
I, am, <clears throat> I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me or what has been entrusted to me. He's speaking about a deposit of truth. And he is setting forth his confidence that God will guard that deposit of truth. In fact, that's what he closes his particular passage with, an admonition to Timothy to guard the deposit of, of truth. Uh, the passage itself talks about a determination that God had within himself from before the foundation of the world to redeem people through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was according to his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. But the fact that God in his sovereignty has determined that something will happen does not mean that there are not means by which it must happen, but in fact, his determination to accomplish something uh, sets forth the necessity of the means by which it will be accomplished. God is not one who is composed solely of will and absolute power, but uh, there is a spectrum in his beauty and in his wholeness that manifests itself toward the creation in attributes of grace and mercy and justice and holiness, uh, consistency and all of these things. And so when he determines to do something, it must come out in a way that is consistent with his own nature. And if he is determined, therefore, to save sinners, he must do it in a way that is consistent with the goodness that he revealed to Moses when he says, I will by no means clear the guilty. And so if he redeems us, if he actually does clear the guilty, then there has to be a way that he does it that is consistent with his promise not to do that. Uh, so he has not cleared the guilty. That's why he has laid our guilt upon Christ. The punishment for our sins was upon him, by his stripes, we are healed. So he has not forgiven us simply by overlooking this, but by sending one who is the singular person in whom redemption could come. His determination to save sinners set in motion the means by which this must take place. And therefore, another aspect of it has to be the changing of the mind and the changing of the heart from our rebellion against God to a mind that is uh, congenial toward God and loves God and embraces His holiness and seeks its joy in knowing the fullness of His attributes. But that change will not come unless there is a cognitive change that takes place in which uh, those things that we have believed, those, the, the worldviews that we have received from our own fallen nature and from the world, that worldview has to be changed and then also our affections have to be changed in order to love that world view, which sets forth redemption and sets forth God's, God's glory. And so that comes by the preaching of the gospel. Uh, and that preaching is in accord with the divine revelation. It's not something that we make up out of our own minds. It's something that God himself has revealed to us. Uh, and this preaching, therefore, comes by chosen instruments. This is why Paul says that he was set forth as a preacher and apostle and teacher. In each one of those offices, uh, Paul held all of them, and each of them has a special place in how this message is set forth. And so Paul was confident that because this has arisen in the eternal purpose of God, that that which he has revealed to him as a teacher and apostle and a preacher will never perish, will never uh, cease to exist, will never cease to have its power. It will operate in the way God intends it to operate until the day that Christ comes again. 
And so we can approach the history of the church with the confidence that though it may appear that there has been a defiling of the truth, it may appear that there has been corruption that has come in, and of course that is more than just appearance, it actually happens, but it is not something that is going to smother the gospel. It's not something that's going substantially to alter the, 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 uh, the presentation of the gospel uh, until the end of the age because God has revealed this. He's given His Holy Spirit to protect it, and He works in the lives of people to bring them into an affirmation of these truths. So Paul sets forth this grand vision by divine revelation that when Christ comes again, that the truth of Scripture still will be being preached. Christ asked the question, when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? And of course, it's a rhetorical question, uh, and which is meant to have a, more than just a simple answer. The answer would be, if it were left up to the depravity and to the rebellion of man, no, he would not find faith on the earth, and he would not find truth on the earth. But that is not God's intention. He will find faith, and he will find truth, because that is what God himself intends. But left to ourselves, it will not happen. So Paul has set forth the confidence revealed to him that this gospel will be protected. It will uh, continue to exist. The truth, the deposit of faith that has been given will persevere because God intends for it to persevere. The study of the history of the church, therefore, is a study of the various ways in which clouds come over this revelation, in which there are many corruptions, uh, in which there are perversions, and then how God operates in the minds and hearts of some to bring about this clarity of truth, to implant this in their conscience, to make them willing to suffer for this, which is the very thing that Paul begins this admonition with, be willing to suffer for the gospel according to the power of God. So throughout the ages... God makes people willing to suffer for this. He gives them clarity. He gives them submission to this divine revelation. Uh, and the history of the church is a study of how God has done that, how God has protected this, this truth. Uh, and so I look at Baptist history as an, as an element of this larger history of how God has protected the deposit. And my conviction is that Baptists have a a special place in this. Uh, I know that Baptists are dependent upon many other visions and many other persons and movements that have shown courage and uh, shown insight into the Word of God. But there is an ongoing attempt to understand more and more, to have more light break forth from His Holy Word to purify us more in our expressions of faith, our expressions of worship, our expressions of conformity uh, to Christ. Uh, and my personal conviction is that uh, at this point, uh, historic confessional Baptist life is the purest expression of evangelical Christianity present in the world. I know there are many people that would want to say that's a very haughty and arrogant thing to say. I don't say it because I've invented Baptist life or because I've dreamed it up, but years of study of both history and seeking to examine Baptist expositions and Baptist confessions and, and Baptist uh, rules of church order and this sort of thing have, have convinced me perhaps we're not perfect, we have more to learn, perhaps there are more things that can be set forth in a, in a brighter way, but at the present time, uh, this deposit of truth, I think, is manifest most clearly and most 
up purely uh, in, within the, the framework of how Baptists understand what Scripture uh, teaches and the relationship between Old Covenant and New Covenant and what the people of God should be and what the people of God should uh, believe. So that's uh, sort of uh, revealing the, the assumptions that I have about the subject uh, that I teach. Uh, I will enter into critiques of those areas where I think people have uh, uh, misplaced a loyalty or have under, uh, misinterpreted a passage of Scripture. Uh, you will have your own take of some of these issues because sometimes we get into very uh, fine divisions of uh, interpretation, uh, and that's a part of the task of, that we all have. That's a part of being a steward of the Word, is to, to be willing to look as closely as we can at the exposition and the interpretations that have been given in the past and to place ourselves within that framework uh, in uh, where we think the greatest purity of understanding has developed. So those are, that, that's the way I approach the, the teaching of Baptist history. Uh, I hope that I am objective within that framework. I hope that I look at the documents uh, and that I want to evaluate the documents fairly. But theologically, I am convinced of a particular viewpoint. Uh, and so I think that if we are to uh, benefit most greatly from the study of history, we have to study it from the standpoint of having some degree of theological assumptions about what we should find. We should be willing to learn if someone that we find has a better idea, has a more defensible exegetical point about a theological issue, then we should be willing to change. Uh, if they have made a mistake and yet we admire them greatly, uh, we must find a way to uh, critique them and to distance ourselves from their error, but with a sense of deep fraternity and, and gratitude for what God did uh, in their lives. And so the study of history helps us uh, to negotiate uh, our own understanding of these things. It helps purify our own ideas. It uh, helps us move more toward uh, a, a mature a ma and maturing understanding of the deposit of faith. So I want to begin with uh, elements of Baptist identity. Now, I think Rex has made available to you an outline of lectures. That outline contains many of the things that I'll be talking about, at least in an outline form, so you can follow. If you find where we are in the lecture, I'll try to say something about it whenever we begin a new lecture, uh, so you can follow along. There are some lectures, however, that will that'll be almost completely new, that will not have an outline in the notes, and you'll just have to uh, follow along, and I'm willing to answer questions and clarify as we go through that. But, but this lecture should be right on the very first page, at least most of it should be, because we're talking about elements of Baptist identity. In the past, when I studied Baptist history, we always started with the idea of Baptist origins. We jumped right into where did Baptists come from? We're going to do that. But I think in the last 20 or 30 years, a question of Baptist identity has become more important. Uh, it has to do with... It determines the way we study Baptist history to have something of a robust understanding of Baptist identity. 
Because if you, if you begin with one view of Baptist identity, you're going to uh, push aside the importance of certain primary source materials, certain ideas that are in Baptist life that may really be important, but if you have a truncated, truncated understanding of Baptist identity, you're not going to pay as much attention to those areas. And so I think it's important for us to have a robust view of Baptist identity as we uh, enter into the study of history. So the first thing that I want us to do is look at these constituent elements of Baptist identity. Uh, the first thing that we're going to find out, and we're going to see that there were early, very some subtle controversies over this particular issue, but we're going to affirm that Baptists are orthodox. Uh, I'm using this in a historical sense related to the development of Christological and theological orthodoxy in the early councils of the church. Uh, a, a part of this understanding of Baptists as orthodox has to do that we believe that God is a revealing God. God has not created the world and then left us in darkness as to who He is. There are various ways in which He reveals Himself. In fact, we could say that if God has created a world, then it is impossible for Him not to reveal Himself. He certainly is not obligated to give special revelation, but if He's created a world, we assume that the world is not created in a way that is opposite his intelligence or opposite his creativity or opposite his holiness, uh, that it is something that would completely baffle us and that we would never understand when we find out who God is, that we would look at the creation or look at our own consciences and we would say, well, I would never have concluded that from, from what he made. Uh, I assume that, that when God creates, when God does something, he always does it in accordance with his nature. This means there are going to be many complexities in it. It's going to mean that there, uh, there's the need to synthesize broad understanding, to come more and more to see what the coherent points are. But nevertheless, all of this serves as, as revelation. And so when we talk about God as a revealing God, as the first point of orthodoxy, we're assuming that our final knowledge of God will have to conform to the revelation that He has given. Now, Scripture itself teaches that God reveals Himself in creation. I think that we would assume that, but the special revelation that we have of creation helps us understand the nature of the creation better than anyone else has understood the creation. Um, scripture tells us that His eternal power and Godhead are embedded in the things that are made so that we're without excuse. Uh, David said that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. And many other passages of Scripture talk about creation. In fact, God uh, will point to creation and its power and its wonder as a, a manifestation of His faithfulness. Look at all the stars. Who created these? Who put them there? He calls them all by name. Why is it that they stay where, where they are? Why is it that they have the kind of coherence that they have? It's because there's a power and an intelligence behind them. So God calls upon us to learn things about Him from creation. We also know that God reveals Himself through conscience. We have a sense of right and wrong. Even those who are the most perverted have a sense of right and wrong. In fact, Romans 1 represents them as knowing those things that are right and those things that are worthy of judgment, but it says, nevertheless, not only do they do them, but they have pleasure in those that, 
that do them. There's always a nagging, biting conscience that is judging our actions. This conscience can be seared so that we have less and less uh, compunction about it, that we have less and less understanding of what would lead us to do. But nevertheless, no one can get away from the idea of right and wrong. Um, I was watching, I think it must have been Saturday night, on Fox, there's this uh, guy named Greg Gutfeld. I don't know if any of you have ever watched Greg Gutfeld or not. He's an atheist. He was reared in a, a liturgical denomination, I believe. But he began to talk about riots on the college campuses. And he always has a panel with him. It's a, it's, it's a wild thing. I don't necessarily advise you're watching it. But it's a good way to sort of get into what conservative secularists are thinking about about things. And he was talking about these riots on college campuses, and he brought up the idea that we're now living in a world of moral relativism. And I thought, what? You're worried about a world of moral relativity? You're thinking that this stuff on the college campuses shows a breakdown in an understanding of moral absolutes? You're an atheist, goodness. What do you care about moral absolutes? Well, he's, a, he's sort of a, he's a sensible guy, but it just shows that even though he has pushed himself somehow through intellectual pride or something into atheism, deep down he recognizes that the world will just absolutely fall apart if we lose a concept of moral absolutes. If, if anything you choose to do is right because you choose to do it, the world can't survive. And that, to me, was a testimony that many times the conscience will override philosophical or religious systems that we have adopted for ourselves. And it shows the power of this. Paul deals with this in Romans 2 also. Uh, when he talks about those who are condemning others in what they do, he says when you condemn others, you condemn yourself because you do the same things. And the, the point is that, that the fact that you you, you can be pushed to a point where you believe something is wrong. Even if it just means if you don't want people stealing from you or you don't want people uh, bearing false witness against you, you realize that is wrong and that calls for vengeance. No matter how perverted you are, there is still deep within your conscience a sense that some things are wrong. And this is a witness to the fact that we live in a moral world. Uh, God is revealing himself con consistently through conscience. But he also reveals himself as in what we call special revelation. Uh, we cannot draw the right conclusions because of our fallenness. We cannot draw the right conclusions from creation. We cannot draw the right conclusions from conscience. And so God in his grace and mercy has revealed himself to us uh, propositionally and historically uh, and, uh, in a sense, the way in which our own experiences begin to coincide with truths, this is a part of the whole fabric of special revelation. Not that we ourselves receive special revelation, but we do find that there are things that happen in our lives that are consistent with what God has revealed will happen. For example, if this were not true, then no one could ever have assurance of salvation. The book of 1 John assumes that we're going to be able to examine our experience in such a way and we can see that our experience coincides with what the Bible says about what will happen to a person who is born again. 
if, if, if we cannot coincide our experience at any level with special revelation, then uh, we can have no assurance at all. But the Bible assumes that we can. And so there is within the, the, the framework of experience that is continually subjected to special revelation and affirmation of those things that are revealed. This is, in fact, the way that Charles Spurgeon would counsel those who were professing that they had come to believe in Christ. If they made it through the first level of, of elders and their, uh, their examinations, and the elders would give these people who were coming to become a part of the church or to be baptized, they would give him a letter or, or give the, a card to him that would let them go see Spurgeon. And Spurgeon would begin to talk to them, and he would explain to them his own testimony, how he came under conviction of sin. And he would ask them, Has, did something like that happen to you? And they would say, oh, yes, I didn't think anyone else had ever felt that way about my sin. Then he would explain how he saw Christ in his beauty and, and what Christ meant. He says, does, has that, has, does that happen to you? And they would say, oh, Yes, he said, it's amazing how my mind changed about, about Christ. And Well, the assumption he has behind that is uh, Spurgeon knew Scripture very well. He knew what should happen according to divine revelation, and he knew that, that his own experience, when he cleans it up of all the things that are extraneous to it, not a part of the essential nature of it, will coincide with what Scripture says happens when a person is brought to repentance and faith and to see the glory of Christ and place faith in Christ and their life is changed and they begin to pursue the things of the Spirit. He knows that all those things will, to a degree, witness uh, with his own experience. And so he is drawing out of them a witness that their experience coincides with Scripture. And so special revelation is something that enters into our lives in a propositional way, in an objective way, a historical way by inspiration and by, by, by revelation and by inspiration, but it also it fixes itself upon our ex experience. And that's the point at which uh, we begin to understand that people actually can come to know God, experience the redemption of God, be conformed to the image of Christ. So this special revelation is something that is set forth objectively for us uh, in Scripture. We know that revelation has occurred in history. People spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The prophets spoke from God in the existential moment. They would give these, these messages. But then, by inspiration, those messages they gave when they received this revelation, by inspiration, those things were recorded. And so they are now in books for us. They're in words. I was just reading the last part of, of Joshua this past week. And as Joshua has finished all of his instructions and the people have committed themselves to this covenant, Joshua says, wrote down all of these things that he had said, uh, even as Moses had done. So there we have this uh, reality that all of these speeches that Joshua has been given now come to the point of being canonical. He wrote them down. And so I'm not exactly sure who wrote Joshua. Joshua might have, but certainly we have a lot of speeches of Joshua in there, and we know that it is his speeches that he gives under the confidence that they should be written down, even as Moses were written down. 
which was a book in Joshua 1 that he was told to study and to, to live by it. And now he writes something down in the same way. So the, the revelation that we have that comes in this existential way that is given moment by moment or, or day by day or month by month upon certain occasions uh, comes to the point of being written down. You read the book of Jeremiah, you see the, the same thing where Jeremiah is giving these prophecies, but then he writes these things down. And one time it's destroyed by the king and so it's written down again. And there's this consistent witness through Scripture that those things that God wants in perpetuity for the people for later ages are, are written down. We know there are some prophecies that are given by prophets that are revelation that were not written down. They were, just, they, were, they were for the moment. They were particular prophecies given to people. We don't have the exact words that were said other than that, that, that those things happened. But there's, there's much of it that was written. So special revelation comes in as to us as the uh, inscripturation of those things that were said or even uh, written uh, at particular times. Paul says in Ephesians I think, uh, chapter 3, when he's writing to the Ephesians, he says, Surely you know about the revelation that I received from the Gentiles. It says, so, so when you read this, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He was confident that their reading this would uh, give them those truths that were necessary for them to know his insight that had come to him by special revelation and now is transferred in this letter in a way that is accurate and adequate to convey to them the message that they should receive from God. So our approach to him, therefore, must conform to Scripture. We don't make this up as we go along. This is something that uh, Baptists are very strong on called the regulative principle, uh, that we don't decide what we're going to believe about things. We don't decide how we're going to worship God. We don't just decide our, on our own how we're going to, to do church. Uh, but we follow these things that God Himself has revealed. and we, we see throughout Scripture that there are very severe penalties for people who did not follow that which God had said when they sought to bring their own ideas into the practice of worship or into doctrinal uh, teaching. Uh, this was rejected and sometimes rejected with an immediate and severe judgment. And so our conformity to Scripture. Now, this is, a, this is an issue that has been under attack for some time. We can see it in, the, of course, the, the liberal movement, the beginning of liberalism, as it was the theological expression of modernism in the last part of the 19th century, uh, where human investigation and human intuition and human experience rode outside the uh, propositions the written propositions of Scripture. Uh, and now Baptist identity is, is being discussed in these terms. I was just reading an article about three days ago that I had read maybe six years ago, and I'd forgotten just how profound this article was because of the alternate way of that, that the person was speaking about Baptist identity. And here's one of the, the sections of this. This is from an article by a, a theologian, uh, at, um, I think, at Emory. 
entitled Revisioning Baptist Identity from a Theocentric Perspective. Now, we, we shouldn't let this idea of he's put theocentric uh, in the title, and we would all applaud that. Yeah, we need to be theocentric, not anthropocentric. But when we see what he means by theocentric, it's just kind of a, a subtle way of, of, of sneaking in a radical anthropocentrism. He's reflecting on the, the uh, theological paradigm of a, of a theologian named James Gustafson. <clears throat> he says it's, he says, Gustafson says, reflection on the meanings of common human experience in light of an experience of the presence of God. We, we need to uh, get at truth, get at an understanding of the, of the identity of different religious groups uh, in that way. It's reflection on the meanings of common human experience in light of an experience of the presence of God. Jones explained his use of Gustafson for formulating Baptist identity. He said, although a full account of my affinities with Gustafson's methodology is beyond the scope of this article, Gustafson's central theme, the primacy of experience, forms the heart of my proposal. That's one of the reasons that I was doing a little bit of an emphasis on human experience earlier, as it is, it is controlled by and interpreted by propositional revelation, not as it lords it over propositional revelation. For Gustafson, the appeal to experience is no radical claim, but rather the recognition of, here's a quote, the truism that man is the knower and that the known comes through human experiences of one or many sorts. First, by noting that experience is prior to reflection. Gustafson reminds theologians that doctrines and dogmas arose out of experiences of persons and communities in the past and are thus conditioned by context. The crucial implication is that dogmas, including Scripture, as the consensus of communities of the past, cannot in any simple way serve as data for theology. And so the plain words of Scripture, the propositions of Scripture, cannot serve as data for theology. What we have to do is see behind it and try to get into the experience that the community had that made them say it in that way. He goes on, second, Gustafson notes that experience is social. Events are given meaning, are construed, the culture and language, and by the culture, the language and communities. Furthermore, this meaning is socially tested. As a present community compares its experience with that of another, whether past or present, the crucial implication is that any organized community that freezes its requirements for membership according to the symbols and explanations adequate at a particular time is bound to have difficulties, especially in the modern world. And so the experience that the first century Christians had that made them say what they said about church membership and about what salvation is and about how you test it, he says that that's just their judgment at a particular period of time. 
and our particular period of time and our experiences are just as valid. We have to look back at that, not let it become sort of a, an authoritative a criterion for us. The data of those experiences do not serve to, to make us sort of ossify our own theology. But we have to see this continuity of experience uh, realize what kind of social issues might have made him say things in a certain way, but we develop our own experience. Now, how this is theocentric, I'm not sure. Uh, but it's a good way of saying something. I guess the idea is that God is present and God gives us experiences, but it's up to us uh, to interpret what these experiences that God gives us actually, actually mean. And this is the way you do Baptist identity. He says, and so we can't, we can't focus on the idea that the first century church believed in baptism of believers only. That may have served them well for certain reasons, but perhaps our experience in our, in our culture will allow us to change baptism of believers only. Or perhaps exegetical uh, preaching was something the apostles did, and they thought that they had to relate everything they did to some prophecy of the Old Testament or some word of Christ and and see in the teaching and in the ministry of Christ a fulfillment of that, and, and then understand that their own sense of revelation had to be consistent, had to be a valid extension of those, those prophecies. Perhaps they thought that way, but we don't think that way anymore. And so uh, we have to develop what message we're going to preach on a way that is, that is distinct from uh, their sort of, their, their captivity to this idea that there is a revelation that is uh, verbal in nature uh, and everything has to be consistent with that. We've, we've outgrown that. So uh, it may seem like, oh sure, everyone knows this, that we live by special revelation, special revelation is the Bible, that the regulated principle is something that uh, gives us a, a sense of purity and security. Uh, and, and gives us a goal toward which we can move in our obedience to Christ. Uh, but that is not something that is accepted broadly by, by any means in, in much of the modern discussion on this. All right, so that's the first point of, of saying Baptists are orthodox. A second point that we want to make in issue of Baptist identity in saying Baptists are orthodox, Baptists believe that God is a triune God. This was not negotiable for them. Look at the confessions of faith. All of them are affirming the relationship of the revelation of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second London Confession says this doctrine of the Trinity is the essential basis of all of our fellowship with God and the comfort we derive from our dependence upon Him. Uh, without an understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, there is a little way that we can understand the various aspects of salvation. The experience that we have had with Christ loses its meaning. Our worship of Him, our prayer life, all the things that relate to Christian life and to spirituality uh, and to preaching and to church discipline uh, and to our fellowship with each other uh, just dies unless we have a robust understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Another aspect of, of, event, of, uh, of orthodoxy is that Jesus is both God and man. Again, the Second London Confession. 
uh, with many other confessions says, in this way it came about that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the divine and the human, were inseparably joined together in one person without the conversion of the one nature into the other, without the mixing, as it were, of one nature with the other. Thus, the Son of God is now both true God and true man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Christ and Christ alone is fitted to be mediator between God and man. He is prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. Now, the reason I emphasize orthodoxy is because within many of the attempts to create Baptist identity, they have mistaken Baptist identity for Baptist distinctives and searched such issues as the Trinity and the, and the uh, Jesus being perfect God and perfect man in one person are not seen as a part of Baptist identity. That's seen as a part of, uh, of other groups, but it's not essential for what it means to be a, a Baptist. They focus more on issues of, of ecclesiology and particularly on issues of liberty of conscience, the right of private interpretation, those kinds of things. I had a, uh, a seminar in Baptist identity on one occasion. and In this seminar, we called a person, a Baptist historian, who's done a, a lot of writing on the issue of Baptist identity. And he was talking about the, the church life, of the church that he was involved in. And we began to get to issues of, of a positive of discipline, of formative discipline, as well as corrective discipline. And so we asked him, said, suppose there was a church member you're in Bible study, and this church member says, well, I've decided that the doctrine of the Trinity is irrational. Uh, it's internally contradictory. And I know that a lot of times the worldview, the superstitious sort of the religious worldview out of which they come, they're able to put together things that simply don't, don't go. There's polytheism and all this they're able to accept. And we know that the worldview that they had arises out of this kind of milieu of, uh, of being able to accept uh, many different issues. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is something that in our age we can't hold. And, now, and the whole idea of, of, of Jesus Christ being one person and yet being on earth and being in a body and yet saying that he's eternal God at the same time, that doesn't make any sense. Is it, what, if, what if you had someone that said that in a Sunday school class? Would you think that, that after a, an attempt to correct him, an attempt to, uh, <clears throat> would you discipline him? Would you say he can still be a member of your church? And he said, well, I mean, I would try to tell him that I thought he was wrong, but I couldn't be a Baptist in conscience and think that it was my business to try to make him uh, be separated from our body just because there is an intellectual problem that he has with those issues. I think those things are more intellectual problems than they are spiritual problems. If he loves his neighbor as himself, if he wants to be involved in compassionate activities and loves the mission of our church in that way, then I think he should be a member in good standing. Well, uh, what part does the cognitive, the intellectual, the willingness to submit the mind to the propositions of Scripture, what part does that have in, 
determining genuine spirituality or what it means to be a Baptist. And so orthodoxy was prized by early Baptists. It's been something that when it was challenged, uh, Baptists would come and would defend. John Gill, some of his best writing was done in defense of the Trinity, in defense of the unity of the deity and the humanity in the person of Christ, even in defense of the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son. In fact, he says, if you don't believe in the eternal generation of the Son, you've either got to be a modalist or, or uh, a polytheist uh, because you can't maintain the doctrine of the Trinity without it. Uh, Andrew Fuller, in his interaction with the Socinians as they were beginning to come into Christian life in England, uh, wrote a work entitled The Calvinist and Socinian Systems Compared to Their Moral Tendency. And of course, he's assuming the orthodox understanding of the person of Christ in all of this and showing how Socinianism breaks down in all of the areas of Christian experience unless you have an, a proper understanding of the deity and humanity of Christ. So this has been a very important issue for Baptists and should be held as a distinct part of Baptist identity. Um, all right, we've been going about 40 minutes, and he wanted to uh, offer opportunity for questions. And so, Rex, at this time, I'm going to ask for questions, and we'll pick, up, pick, pick back up at this particular place on Baptist identity in our next session. Is that okay? All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.